Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. I wanted to take a moment to tell you guys about my favorite baby food brand. So I actually don't buy a lot of baby food and I don't use it a lot, but I do like to have some baby food, some pouches on hand just for those moments where I feel like I need something convenient or I need to just throw something in my diaper bag and go. So my favorite baby food brand and really the only one we use now is Serenity Kids. The reason that I love Serenity Kids so much is because they focus on nutrient-dense foods such as pasture-raised and grass-fed meat and organic vegetables. So I know that the quality is amazing and I feel safe and confident feeding it to my baby. You can go to myserenitykids.com and use the code TaylorKulik15 at checkout to save 15% off your order. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm so excited today. I have Michelle Charrier here with us um, from her Instagram account is Babies and Brains. And we are going to be chatting about attachment and brain development and all kinds of things related to um, infant development that are important when we're talking about sleep training. So Michelle, thanks so much for being here. Do you mind just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do and what your background is? Yeah. So again, I'm Michelle. I created Babies and Brains um, last July. So we're kind of coming up on a year pretty quickly. Um, But my experience actually primarily lies in community behavioral health. So I've been in behavioral health for about eight years now um, and specifically specialized in birth to five for about six years. So um, I work within a specialty program. So at my agency, we serve children of all ages and we actually serve adults now but my program specifically is birth to five so I have a small team that I supervise um, and we provide psychoeducation to parents in the community so our primary members are um, related to the foster care community so children that have been in foster care currently in foster care or have been adopted so we work with biological parents adoptive parents teachers grandparents kinship really whoever's involved with the child so that's what I'm still currently doing nine to five while also doing some of the babies and brains stuff. That's awesome. And if you do not follow Michelle, her Instagram again is babies and brains, but it is her Instagram is phenomenal. You give so many, so much information. Your posts are um, just a plethora of information that I think is important for all parents to know and understand. And so, you know, I wanted you to come on the podcast to really um, put some pieces together for us about in the way the brain develops and attachment and relationships and why responsive parenting is important because, you know, I talk about this on my Instagram account coming from the background of being an occupational therapist and being specifically a sleep specialist. 
but some people, I still get a lot of questions about it. And so I think it's important to know that there isn't a lot of research out there specifically about sleep training and cry it out methods. You know, when we're talking about sleep training here in this podcast, I guess I should define that. We're really talking about non-responsive methods where you are ignoring your child's cries, whether all at once and you're just letting them cry for however long it takes, or you're gradually, um, you know, increasing the amount of time that you're ignoring their cries. Um, I shouldn't even say ignoring because that sounds very negative, but not responding to, to your child's cries um, or anything really that you're doing with your child to try to elicit a behavioral change, which would be to get them to stop crying out for you or anything that feels like it's really going against your intuition. It doesn't feel good to you. It doesn't feel like it's the right thing to do for your family. Um, and so, you know, just a disclaimer, when we talk about sleep training here, we're never judging anybody for choices that they've made. We're never shaming anybody. Most of y'all know that I have attempted to sleep train my oldest daughter for a very short period of time before I realized it just didn't feel right. And that's really what got me into um, supporting families with sleep without sleep training. But what's really important to know is that there's just not a ton of information related to cry it out, separation-based forms of sleep training. And the science that is available to us is very flawed and biased. And it doesn't often assess for long-term outcomes. And a lot of the outcomes that we're thinking about in terms of can sleep training be potentially harmful or damaging are outcomes that are very difficult to measure um, because it's you would have to measure them long-term and it's really almost impossible to figure out that sleep training itself was harmful. So when we're talking about sleep training, we really have to pull what we know, the information that we do know about neuroscience and attachment and brain development and relationship and put those pieces together to kind of make a decision about sleep training and whether that's ideal for children. So Michelle, would you mind just telling us a little bit about why responsive caregiving is so important and, and how that relates to attachment? Yeah. So I think the important thing to know about the brain is that it's not just a blank slate. And I think that's what people think, um, that it's just there to be written on. Really, it's experience expectant. So structures are in place, um, hormones are in place, expecting something to happen. And that expectation is the responsiveness from the parent. And so we know biologically, there are many mechanisms built into a child to elicit that responsiveness. Even the cuteness of a baby is meant to elicit a response mm -hmm. from a caregiver. Um, and so I think we don't realize that it comes down to biology. It's not just a fad. It's not just something, it's not like we're just deciding to do this because this is a new way of parenting in this day and age. It's really, it really goes back to millions of years ago, protection, safety, um, really life or death. Um, and I think that realizing that responsiveness means survival to a baby really ups the importance of it because we're not looking at it as just um, like, this is something I have to do, I have to get through, and then my child's going to end up okay. This is a lifelong pattern we're establishing with these children. This is something that's going to affect how they respond in other relationships, whether that's friendships, intimate relationships, or partnerships at work. So we're setting a foundation. And so with brain development, um, there's just timeframes that we have the most impact 
when we're doing this responsiveness. So I think that understanding birth to five is that window and we need to put our all into that window um, can kind of help people understand um, just, I guess, the importance of responding to your baby. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, I hear sometimes one of the arguments that I hear for sleep training is that, well, as long as you're responding to baby during the day, it's okay. Like they're resilient. It's okay to not respond to them at night. And, you know, some babies, it only takes five or 10 minutes to of them crying for them to kind of be sleep trained. And then they're, they're effectively sleep trained after that. And so, you know, my response is always that, well, we just don't know, you know, it might sleep training might not affect a child, mm-hmm. but it's, it's going to affect every child differently. It might affect one child and maybe even seem traumatic to one child while it might not affect the next child. And we don't know that. And so why take that risk? And what would you, what would your response be to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I have an issue with, so a lot of people will use like, oh, it's just correlational. And they kind of use that as a negative. So there's no like, oh, the people who talk about attachment and responsiveness are just using correlational information, but really like, how do we learn, right? We take the things that we already know and we apply them to the possible unknown. Um, And so like you said, like, it's not gonna hurt to be responsive, right? But it could hurt to not be responsive. So why take that chance? We know that the brain is ready for that responsiveness. Let's follow biology. There's not going to be harm in following that biology. So I think it's safer to do that than to take the risk that it is going to impact them social, emotionally, now and into adulthood. Like you said, we just don't know that yet and it's not worth it. So this goes back to we don't have, science is never going to prove no harm from sleep training. We can't prove no harm, but just because there is no evidence that sleep training does specific harm, doesn't mean that it doesn't do harm. Um, So the science is really limited and science is going to be limited because science in how it's designed and how we conduct it really can't measure everything that needs to be measured to account for the complexity of humans. And so I think this goes also back to when we're looking at science or even when we're just hearing recommendations from our doctors, from our family members, from our friends about sleep training, does this match what your intuition is telling you to do? Does it feel rooted in biology? Because that's the thing you said, you know, it's never going to be, it's never going to cause harm to respond to your baby. And unfortunately, we have a ton of parents that have been made to believe that it will cause the baby harm to respond to them, which I think is one of probably the most devastating aspects of all of this. You know, if a family has all of the information and they still decide that sleep training is the best um, decision for them, you know, that's fine. That's, I, I feel I'm happy that they've made the decision that's based in facts and done a true risk benefit analysis. But the problem is, is that there are so many families, especially here in the States and, you know, maybe in Canada and more Western countries. And now I know it's happening all around the world too, because sleep training has really bled into other cultures, but we have so many parents that truly believe that they're harming their baby by trusting their biological instincts to respond to them. And so they're making this decision to sleep train out of fear. And that is what is so concerning and devastating to me because it really sucks when you make that decision out of fear. I know because I did it. And then you realize, Hey, I actually didn't need to do this to my child. And it's maybe not what I wanted to do with my child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. Like if you 
research what you research and you feel good about your decision to sleep train. Like I am not judging parents ever, but like you said, if you're making that decision out of fear because of, you know, marketing tactics that kind of instilled that fear on you that are playing off of generational fear, which is, that's the most terrible thing of it all to me is that we're playing off of generational patterns and generational fear that's been passed down, then yeah, to me, that's not right. You weren't presented with maybe all of the facts. You weren't presented with the full picture and you have your own generational trauma coming into play that is influencing that decision. And I don't think that's fair at all, which is why I speak out so much against the training industry, never mm -hmm. against the parents, never against the parents. Exactly. It's never against the parents. It's always against the paradigm and the, the strategies that we're using right now. Um, Michelle, could you maybe talk a little bit about what is actually happening in the brain when your baby is crying or dysregulated and we, we respond to them versus what happens in the brain when we don't respond to their cries? Yeah. So really early in infancy, infants are learning to regulate everything, right? Like body temperature, you know, response to stimuli in the environment and their response to stress. So what we teach them early on, if we respond is, okay, my cortisol rises, my stress hormone rises and I'm stressed. And then someone comes and helps me and my stress is relieved. And so we're teaching the body to be within this window of tolerance and then what does it feel like when we're outside of that window of tolerance? And we teach them that calm is a possibility. So then the body gets that roadmap of how to get to calm and then they carry that forward with them. So if we do not do that, we have stress hormones rise and they stay elevated. And so then what happens is their baseline for stress is going to be different than a child who's been responded to. So we see them have lower thresholds for stress. We see them stay, stay stressed longer. Um, and have more intensity in their stress. And then that is what their body learns and that's the roadmap they take forward into their adulthood. So we'll see those kids possibly be more sensitive to stress and um, be more overwhelmed by stress where a child who's been responded to may not get as overwhelmed and may recover quicker. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think it's really important to have that knowledge about what's actually happening in the brain. Um, again, not to shame, not to make you feel guilty or bad about any decisions you've made, but we just have to know, we have to actually have, um, facts, accurate information and facts to help us make the decision that is best for us. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, can we talk a little bit about trauma and can a baby who is not responded to, can that be a traumatic experience or, and maybe does it have to be a traumatic experience? Is it always a traumatic experience? So yeah, trauma is so complex. So the answer is no, that there's never something that's going to be definite in regards to trauma. It's dependent on so many factors. It's dependent on biology and genetics. It's dependent on the recovery environment. It's dependent on how long the trauma takes place. And are we, do we have multiple traumas taking place one after the other, or is it one event? So yes, not being responded to could be traumatic, but also no, it may not. Um, but I deal with some kids who've had extreme neglect um, and like being left in a dark room, not being fed, being in soiled diapers for days, not being picked up for days, um, not being talked to ever. And so when I see that, I just think why, why even, you know, go in that realm of not responding because it could be traumatic, but mm -hmm. I can't say that for sure. And, and everything is a maybe 
that right. it could be, you know? Um, so I don't want to scare people that, oh, if you did that, your baby is traumatized, but we just have to think about other factors, you know, is the home stressful and we're not responding. I mean, that's a compounding, you know, two mm -hmm. compounding factors there. So that's something to think about as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, you know, what we know is that responsive parenting is what helps children to thrive. And so I think that when we're talking about things like non-responsive sleep training, we have to really um, consider that and, and think about whether that risk of potentially doing something that we know is not ideal for development is, is kind of worth that it's worth that risk. That benefit is worth the risk, whatever perceived benefit there is. Right. Because we can talk all day about why I don't actually think that non-responsive sleep training fixes any sleep problems. Um, but that's an, that's another episode. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, okay. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, sometimes our babies just cry, right. And crying isn't inherently bad. It's not bad for babies to cry if they're being responded to, but, you know, especially for new parents, maybe parents of multiple children with young babies, it's, it's very difficult to always respond to your child's cries immediately. So I often get questions like, um, you know, what about when my baby is crying in the car because they hate their car seat? Or what if I have to go to the bathroom and my baby's crying for a few minutes? Is that the same as non-responsive sleep training? Yeah, I get those questions a lot too. And it's not the same at all. It comes down to the intent and that environment is going to look different. If you're in the car, you're probably reaching back. You're probably verbalizing to the baby somewhat, you know, with a tone, you're trying to comfort them. Um, so it's crying isn't inherently bad, like you said, and cortisol isn't even inherently bad. Like we need it to function in our day to day. It's our body's cup of coffee in the morning. So no, it's not a baby's not doomed because they cry while you're in the bathroom or they're in the car because it's like likely that you're shouting out to them, you're trying to pat them, and then you're going to respond to them after you're done. There's a difference between that and you're standing outside the door at the same time every night and you're not responding. Right. And so co-regulation, can we, we should probably talk about co-regulation a little bit. So our babies are meant to, um, they're wired to co-regulate with a calm, responsive adult caregiver. They can't self-regulate on their own. And I talk about this in previous episodes, but, um, co-regulation doesn't just mean you're stopping the cries or you're mm -hmm. always holding your baby. I mean, that's ideal in a lot of situations, but sometimes you can't do that. Like you can't hold your baby if they're in the car crying, but like you said, you can use, um, other strategies to help your baby to co-regulate. You can show them that you're there. Um, and it's one of those things, you know, sometimes we're just and this includes our babies and our children, we're just in situations that are not fun for us, that we don't like, that make us angry, that make us frustrated. And that is part of life. But the difference is, are we leaving our children alone to deal with that anger, that frustration, that sadness, whatever the emotion is, or are we with them through it, empathizing with them, validating them, showing them that we are there for them. We're trying to remain as calm as we can for them because they kind of borrow are calm to help themselves calm down. So um, any thoughts on that? Yeah. So um, yeah. So co-regulation is everything. And a lot of people think, well, if I do that for them now, they're not going to learn how to do it for themselves later, but it's the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, teaching them now and showing them now, modeling it, doing it, being with them now is going to teach them how to do that later. So we're not just doing something for them in that moment. We are literally building a skill 
in their physiological stress response system by co-regulating. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when we put co-regulation on a schedule, you know, like when we're talking about sleep training, like it can only happen every 20 minutes or it can only happen every five minutes, um, or I only do it from afar. I can only pat, I can't do eye contact. Those are all really important elements that go into co-regulation, the eye contact, the proximity, um, you know, the consistency, the warmth. And so we're kind of making it more of a mechanical thing when really it's a biological response, both in parents and in babies. So it's immensely important, um, especially to their future independence. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing is that all babies are so different in what they need and how easily maybe they co-regulate. Some babies are more sensitive than others. Some babies have, um, you know, different temperaments. And so it's so important for parents to be really in tune with their baby and their intuition and, and responding. Literally, it is responding to your baby moment by moment, changing the way that you're interacting with and responding to them in response to how what you see that they need. Um, and so it's a very dynamic process. It's not, it cannot be made into this step-by-step, like you said, mechanical process where you go in at minute five and you pat and then you smile and then, you know, whatever that looks like, you can't do that and apply it to all parent um, child dyads because it's just not going to work. And for a lot of babies, it's not going to work for probably maybe the easier going babies. It might work. Mm -hmm. And those are the babies that those are the, probably the parents that are also, you know, out there saying, well, if you just do X, Y, and Z, your baby will sleep. Right. But Mm -hmm. you had a different baby. So, um, I think it's so important to not make this a mechanical step-by-step process. And I think that's true with pretty much everything in parenting because relationship is so dynamic and so fluid. So with um, sleep training and seeking out the science related to sleep training, I think we also have to think about the role that generational trauma, generational fear, and just those generational patterns play a role. Um, So if we think about someone whose parents didn't pick them up when they cried or didn't respond to them, their friends tell them, hey, don't pick your baby up when they cry. And now you are not picking up your baby when you cry. If you find information that tells you that, hey, that doesn't align with biology, or hey, that maybe wasn't the best thing to do, that wasn't in the best interest of your baby, what does that say about you? What does that say about your friends? What does that say about your parents? That becomes a lot to process. So Mm -hmm. we get in this situation where it's like, wow, I've been doing this thing. My friends do these things. My parents have done these things to me. And now I'm finding this information that says that maybe that was bad or that was harmful. And so instead of processing that, because that's a huge thing to process, it's like, nope, I found this information that said it's not harmful. And that Mm -hmm. is kind of an easier path to go down. It validates the experience that you've had. It validates that your friends, you know, are doing the same thing for a specific reason. And it makes it make sense. The other way, it doesn't make sense. And it kind of, your world can kind of come crashing down. It changes how you're going to think about yourself and the people around you. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of why I think we've fallen into this pattern of like, well, the science says this, this one scientific study says this thing, and I'm going to cling to that. And that is going to be my reality. Yes. Yes. And I get this all the time. You know, I get, I get sent one research article that quote unquote proves that sleep training isn't harmful or proof. I even got, I got sent a research article that quote unquote proves that bed sharing is harmful and not like in the safety kind of way, but harmful to mental health. And 
I was just appalled by, not by the person that sent it. She was just asking a question. But when I read it, I was like, I don't even think I can address this because it just seems so ridiculous to me and counterintuitive to everything I know. And, but yeah, we're looking for that. You know, we all kind of try to find confirmation bias, right? We, it's easier to just find the information that confirms what we already believe to be true. And it's definitely much harder and often painful to realize that maybe we didn't have all of the answers and we still don't have, I mean, none of us have all of the answers, but um, we have to do work to actually change our thought processes and, you know, how we're responding to our children. And, and then, uh, like you said, it comes along with, you know, what did my parents do this? Like, and how do I now process that reality that maybe my parents did these things? And there's just, it's a lot to unpack. I think you're totally right. And I think that is what keeps a lot of people stuck in this place where they're really just attacking anybody who shares information that they don't agree with or that doesn't align with their decisions. And that's why, you know, the accusations of mom shaming are so rampant and mom shaming is wrong, but sharing information is never, never mom shaming. It might make you feel ashamed. And I think those are valid feelings that need to be explored, but the person that is sharing information is not shaming. And so we have to figure out I think how collectively we can really move past this place of, you know, not being able to have open conversations and learning and growing because it really is going to stunt our growth if we can't have these conversations with each other openly without all of the shame associated with it. Yeah. And I think the problem with social media is the buttons are at your fingertips and the response <laughs> is so immediate where, yes. you know, really in reality, if we, if we read something that um, disproves something that we've been doing. And that's hard for us. We really should take a step back. We should reflect, be with our feelings. What do I believe this information says about me? And a lot of people take that information and they take it as this says that I'm a bad person, or this mm -hmm. says that my parents were bad people. We can say like, Hey, this practice harmed me or the practice that I did harmed my child, but I'm not a bad person. I was doing the best with what I knew at the time, but us having it at our fingertips so quickly, we have that immediate knee-jerk reaction. I don't like this. This makes me feel bad about myself, or this makes me feel bad about my parents and question my parents. When in reality, we should put the phone down, mm -hmm. step away, really think about that. What does that say about me? It doesn't say that I'm a bad person. It just says that the things that I knew at the time, you know, weren't the best, but that's the information that I had. And I was trying my best. I had the best intent in those moments. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that the most powerful thing that we can do as parents is to acknowledge that maybe we did something that now we're realizing maybe wasn't ideal um, and then reflect on that and make changes. I think that's so powerful. And I think that is such a great lesson for our kids to learn too, for mm. us to model that to them, being open to new information, being willing to change your mind, um, being willing to say, hey, I did this with you and I regret it and I'm sorry. And I'm going to work on doing things differently in a way that feels better with for us and aligns more with um, my value, my new values, right? I think that is such an important lesson, even just to model to our children. And so it's okay to make mistakes, you know? And um, with that, I guess, you know, let's move into talking about 
what what do we do if we did maybe sleep train or not even you know not even talking about just sleep training what if we just weren't as responsive to our children as we now realize maybe we should have been or wanted to have been um or we feel like we kind of made some mistakes related to attachment and responsiveness and emotion you know is there room for um recovering from that and helping our our relationship with our child and where do we start Yes. Yeah. There is always room for re repair. And I think that's also where a lot of the shame and fear comes. It's, it's like, I did this and I can never come back from this. And my child mm -hmm. is doomed and I've harmed them. Um, I have people who did sleep training for two weeks and they're like, did I harm my child forever? And the answer is no. I mean, there are children that go through horrific traumas um, that I've personally worked with. And there is always a chance for recovery you know what is most important is having that warm and responsive caregiver that's going to be consistent and that is the optimal recovery environment for a child so you can change your patterns you can change your responsiveness and that is going to be the repair it's not that they're going to need to be in therapy for 15 years because of something that you did one time or you did for a month as far as like ignoring or sleep training and we're obviously not talking about, you know, really intense traumas when mm -hmm. I'm referencing the repair. Um, but of course, the window for repair, it, you know, optimally between zero to three, we can make the most changes. Zero to five, we still have that ability to make some pretty intense changes. And then after that, it just gets a little harder. So it's not that you're doomed after five years old, but it just gets harder to make changes in the brain. And so you might just see that recovery have to take longer. You might have to put more effort into it, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. We can recover at any age. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, you know, I get asked a lot, what does that look like? I mean, it's just, it's really just being responsive and being warm. And that's really, there's no like special tricks. It's really just changing Kind of changing how you approach your child and making sure that you are being responsive and um, supporting them through their emotions right yeah you want to teach them that their emotions are safe that you're a safe caregiver that they can go explore the world from and that they can come back to when the world is scary and harms them so we just want to be that secure base that safe haven i'm kind of referencing circle of security there and just really being there for them while they go out into the world and they come back and they need that emotional support it, I'm making it sound simple. Obviously it's different in the day to day, but it's not a bag of tricks. It's not one, two, three, ABC. And I always say like, if it were that easy, like I would have written the book on it and I would be rich and you know, we would be done, right? If it could, if it were just one, two, three answers. So it's not that easy. It's a dynamic that you're changing. It's a relational dynamic it's your response pattern that you're changing. So really it lies in the parent, which obviously that's hard because the responsibility really is within that adult. Um, mm -hmm. We can't just plop kids into therapy and, and things get fixed. Um, it's really on the adult to monitor their regulation because you can't co-regulate if you're not regulated right. and to just be reflective and mindful throughout the day. Like, am I responding you know, more because I'm anxious, you know, am I responding based off of my own internal feelings versus am I reading my child's needs and cues and responding based off of that? Yeah. And I also think, especially for parents that are in this situation, but really so many parents out there, um, 
therapy for ourselves as parents can be so helpful. Counseling, therapy, something like that to help us process, you know, how we were raised or why we are triggered by certain emotions or whatnot, because so many of us do have this, um, this kind of issue, I guess I'll, I'll call it, um, but it's not our fault. Um, but we do need to learn to process that and work on our own self-regulation skills. A lot of us weren't given this, the tools of learning how to self-regulate through co-regulation as children. And so expecting us to, expecting ourselves to know exactly what to do to co-regulate our child when we can't even stay self-regulated. I mean, that is totally impossible. And I'm speaking from personal experience, um, you know, and I will just say too that it is, you don't have to be perfect. You know, this is such, no parent is perfect. Every parent makes mistakes mistakes, every parent gets upset and has times where they say things that they don't want to say or respond in a way that doesn't feel good to them. Um, and it's just about recovering from that and, and being mindful, like you said, and not just, you know, justifying it and blowing it off, but really working on it and trying to do differently and reflect on why did I say that? Why did I do that? What can I do differently next time around? And I really think the most powerful thing that are, that can help our relationship with our children is for them to see us making that effort and caring. And I will say from personal experience, it is very hard to repair when your caregiver or parent does not acknowledge what they, what they did or how they mm -hmm. treated you and how that impacted you. It's really hard to repair. And so if you're worried about repairing my personal opinion, based on my personal experience is that the most powerful thing would be to have a caregiver and see your caregiver actually caring and wanting to do it differently and trying to learn. And that's so huge. Yeah. And I always tell people like, we're not raising superhuman robots. Like mm -hmm. we are raising little humans. So we want to show them that humans make mistakes. Humans come back from mistakes. And I think a lot of people think, well, I have to be perfect in front of my child because I can't let them know that, you know, I'm having a hard time, but they're going to grow up to be adults that have a hard mm -hmm. time and they need that roadmap and that example. And it does impact you into adulthood. I mean, I did not have, um, you know, caregivers who really like apologized mm -hmm. and I'm 30 years old. And that is something I'm still working on. Yes. I still get these feelings that come up in my stomach when I have to say sorry and admit that maybe something I did wasn't so great. Same. And I'm, like I said, I'm 30, like I'm still, this is a work in progress for me. So if we can work on that early on, give them a better roadmap to move forward, something that they don't need to work on and recover from, that's where we're going to have the optimal impact. So a hundred percent, I think parents, I don't think you should be stressing your child out with your stress, but I do think you should model that, Hey, things happen. I recover from them. You can do this too. Right. Exactly. Michelle, can you talk about, um, the, infant caregiver dyad and how, you know, it really is, it's not just baby's mental health or mama's mental health or parents' mental health. It's really both and both matter and how they really are related to each other. Yeah. So, so definitely um, infant mental health is dyadic mental health. So we don't just consider infant alone or mother alone or parent alone, you know, whoever the caregiver is, we have to consider them together. Are they healthy in their relationship? Um, as two people combine into one. And I think a lot of times we look at, well, it's either mom or baby. And a lot of people talk about this with sleep training. Well, I had to do it because, you know, I wasn't well. 
Um, and I think thinking that that's the only option and that, you know, we can dismiss baby's mental health, um, that's kind of where some of the problem lies. We want to really consider both of those together. So obviously a baby can't do better than their caregiver. They're only mm -hmm. going to be as well as their caregiver is um, because they're totally dependent on that caregiver for their stability and their well-being. But at the same time, you know, a parent isn't going to do well if their child's not doing well. So it's really mm -hmm. an interplay that is so fluid. Um, and we do have to prioritize parent mental health because of that trickling down to the baby. But that doesn't mean that we forget the baby because ultimately that's going to impact the parent as well. It's a two-way street. Definitely. And I think there are there are so many factors that we can explore if mom or parent is struggling. There's so many other factors to explore before talking about sleep training or thinking about sleep training. Um, and it's really a disservice to mom to act as though sleep training is the only option, the only treatment for, and, and sleep de deprivation. Sleep deprivation is huge when it comes to mental health, but it is not the only part of mental health. And to blame all of maternal mental health issues on sleep deprivation and a baby who doesn't sleep is just such a disservice in my opinion. Yeah. And I know that's used in marketing a lot, you know, like you're causing a chemical imbalance in your baby by not helping them <sighs> sleep and you're having, you know, sleep deprivation. And so you're not performing your best. And that is the marketing that is used. And I think that's just so tragic to mental health as a whole, because mm -hmm. we should be supporting mental health and advocating for it, but we're using it as a marketing mechanism and a tool. And how harmful is it to a mother who, you know, maybe has postpartum anxiety or depression and she's doing something that maybe doesn't align with how she feels internally right. and, and how her instincts come up for her. So I think we talk about just sleep deprivation as like a, just a flat, that's a word we throw out there, but like, what are the dynamics going on with that mother and child when they're practicing these methods. Mm -hmm. um, it just goes a lot deeper. And like you said, there's so many factors to consider. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so informative and I'm sure um, the community will really find it informative as well. Would you mind telling us where we can find you and what kind of services or support you offer? Yeah. So, so I am on Facebook and Instagram of babies and brains. Um, I am in the middle of actually trying to revamp my services because it's, it's, a, it's been a little rough trying to work the nine to five and mm -hmm. get this stuff started. So right now I'm, I don't have anything posted on my website, babiesandbrains.com. Um, but anybody can reach out to me if they're interested and we can kind of work something out. I am starting my groups next week. Those are already booked. Um, we're going to be doing circle of security, but I am planning on hopefully doing some kind of course content, maybe some guides and whatnot stuff. That's a little bit more accessible in the future. So that will be something to look out for. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one -one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor Kulik. I hope you'll join me next time.